Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're going to pause uh, our um, First Peter series. And I got I, I, I to gotta whine just a little bit here. Um, the way that the, that the, the calendar, my preaching calendar, had lined up, would have me in a passage in uh, the later verses in 1 Peter chapter 3, which speak of uh, Christ placing everything in subjection under his feet because of his resurrection. And so I was all, uh, I was very pleased uh, that the Lord had allowed the, the, the things to fall into place such that as we continued in our 1 Peter series, I would be preaching a very relevant Easter resurrection message on Easter Sunday. Um, but then, as it turned out, we missed a Sunday uh, because of uh, the quarantine things a few weeks ago. And so now I'm off. And so it didn't make quite as much sense to preach the, the text uh, that we were in. Uh, so we're diverging from uh, faith in exile for just this Sunday uh, and turning our attention to Romans chapter 5. And uh, I'm, I'm calling this message Saved by His Life which is a phrase that comes right out of this uh, passage, as you will see. We're going to focus on verses 6 through 11. In just a minute, I'm going to read to you from the beginning of the chapter, verse 1 down through verse 11, but we'll focus on verse, uh, verses 6 through 11. But what's going on in these first five verses of Romans chapter 5 is that the Apostle Paul, who's written this letter, is looking back uh, at all of the grace that has come to sinners through Christ's death. Namely, their justification. That is a big fancy word that means we have been declared righteous before God. We have been made right with him. And so he speaks of the benefits of justification in the first uh, five verses. Uh, and then the, 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 the attention turns to a, a coming and future salvation uh, and we'll, we'll focus a bit on that this morning. Uh, so just bear in mind as we read these verses uh, uh, right now that the first five verses are kind of just the context of uh, looking back toward the grace that God has poured upon sinners through the death of Christ and their justification by faith in him. Let me read for you verses 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, 
much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The emphasis of this passage, I think what the Apostle Paul is trying to do for his readers in Rome in the first century and what the Holy Spirit is trying to do through these verses for us today is to give us a rock-solid assurance, an unswerving confidence in the salvation that he has purchased and accomplished for his people. And you see, again, in verses 1 through 5, he's speaking of the benefits of our justification by faith. Having now been declared righteous, not because we actually are righteous, but because by placing our faith in Jesus, he has declared us to be so. The righteousness of Jesus becomes our righteousness. Because those things are true, we have, you see them listed, peace with God. We have access into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I think that's a coming uh, glory, the, the glory of a future salvation. Uh, and we are able to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that in God's economy, in God's providence, suffering is only able to produce good fruit for the heart that is trusting in Him, for the heart that is resting on Christ. Suffering brings the good fruit of character and endurance and hope, right? So those are the benefits of justification by faith that he spells out. And, and he ties those very closely to the cross, through Christ's death. So because Christ was crucified for sinners in their place, the sinner who places his faith in Christ and recognizes that is God's provision for his sin, then all these benefits come. Right? And those are all sort of past tense benefits. We have these benefits now, uh, peace with God, access to God, hope, all these things, because of what Christ did on the cross and our faith that we placed in him there. The emphasis then of the second half of this passage, verses 6 through 11, is toward a future salvation, and it hinges more, as you'll see as we walk through this passage together, on the life of Jesus, namely the resurrected life. Of Jesus, Not his life prior to the cross, but his life from resurrection and into eternity. So the first thing that Paul does here to, to, to get our, uh, our confidence in God up is to express and display the depth and width and height of God's love for sinners. Look at verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. All right, so he, he uses all of these words to describe us uh, in this passage, which are not flattering words. Uh, we, in fact, there are four different terms that he uses throughout these verses uh, to say who we are. So there in verse 6, he called us weak, powerless, right? Uh, unable. I think what he has in view there is probably our inability to save ourselves, to help ourselves. We cannot by our strength or our own goodness sort of draw near to God. We don't have that in us. We were weak. We were helpless. And then he calls us ungodly. 
That is in our character and in our the disposition of our hearts. We had turned from him, right? We were we were not godly. Down in verse eight, he says, "But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us." And this means we are in active rebellion against God. We are actively violating His moral commands. That was the the condition of our hearts utterly unable to help ourselves, turned away from God in ungodliness, actively disobeying and violating God's commands. This is who we were and how we were and what we were doing when Christ died for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The depth of God's love here is amazing to consider. As he speaks here about the notion of dying for somebody else, he says, scarcely would anybody be willing to die, even for a righteous person. And then he kind of digresses a little. Okay, maybe for a good person, somebody, somewhere, might be willing right, to, to sacrifice himself for that person. But that would be very unusual and very rare. But for the most part, most of us would be entirely unwilling to give ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of someone else, even for the sake of someone that we deem as worthy, right? As, as a righteous person. Scarcely will anyone die for a righteous person. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't die for lovely people. He didn't die for good, kind, soft-hearted, just trying to do the right thing kind of folks. He died for weak, ungodly sinners. And actually, he says one more thing about us a few verses down. If you'll look in verse 10, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So he calls us enemies. We are at war with God. We are at enmity with God. So this is the situation that we were in. We were ungodly, helpless sinners and enemies of God. And God, in that situation, with us in that condition, sent his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to bear our sins and to purchase salvation. To purchase justification that we might be declared righteous before God. This is a picture of the depth and wonder of God's love. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So look at verse 9. He says, since therefore, since that's the truth, right? Since the truth is Christ died for you in your sin and all of these benefits of justification for those who have trusted in Christ are there, are, are, are yours. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That second phrase there, much more will we be saved by him, implies resurrection. It implies 
the, the resurrected life of Christ. Because clearly the justification that he's speaking of, he, he ties to the blood of Jesus. That is his death, right? Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, that is by his dying and shedding his blood as a sacrifice on the cross, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So resurrection here is implied uh, as this the second phrase introduces a new idea, but uh, he will make that even more explicit down in verse 10, which we'll get to in just a second. So here, here's what I want you to see in, in verse 9. If Jesus had stayed dead, we would not have a lasting hope. We would still be subject to God's wrath. The death and resurrection of Jesus together are what accomplish the salvation of sinners. Jesus in the grave does not complete our salvation. Jesus risen and ascended completes our salvation. There's a logic here that Paul uses. He uses it in verse 9 and then again in verse 10, which we'll look at in just a minute. There's a logic here where he says, since we have been justified by his death, right, by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The logic is something like this. Since God has provided for sinners in such a lavish, costly way, then it follows that he will also ensure that they are preserved, that is, saved by him from the wrath of God. He, he argues from the, the, for the lesser, that like we will be finally saved, on the basis of the greater, right? So if the greater thing is true, that he died to secure justification and all these things for us, if he's willing to do that, and he already has done that, then surely he would continue that work. Surely he would preserve us and carry us on uh, to uh, its completion. It must be true also that he will carry this thing out. It's as if a, a man pays a ransom for his child. Let's say his child has been abducted and he has to go and retrieve him and, and pay uh, a large sum of money to retrieve the child from the captor. And if you assume, or if you, if you will grant that this father has gone to where the child is being held and has given a large sacrificial sum of money in order to take him back into his custody, he would then not simply leave the child at the curb and say, good luck finding your way home. He is going to take the child under his arm and ensure that he makes it home safely. If he has done the costly thing, if he has already spent the money and made the trip and gone to where the danger is in order to uh, get, get the child out of uh, captivity, then surely, if that is true, it must be true that he would also bring him safely all the way home. That's kind of the logic that uh, Paul uses here. So Paul says in verse 9, essentially, since the father has paid the ransom for his kidnapped child, traveled uh, at his own expense to the place where he was being held, and brought him back into his own custody, how much more 
will he also bring him safely back home with him? How clear it is to us that he would carry this out to completion, that he would finish the work of salvation, having paid such a high price for its uh, beginning. There's a parallel statement to that in verse 10. So verse 9 is, Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10 says, look at it, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He's using the very same sort of logic here as well. If, if God has done this costly, great work, then surely he will do this work of finishing it, of carrying it on, right? And if Christ's death reconciled enemies to God, then it's all the more certain, he says much more, that his resurrected life will preserve his friends, namely those who have been reconciled. And so you see two sets of contrast in verse 10. The contrast between death and life, and the contrast between enemies and friends, those reconciled. And so looking back, he says, if his death reconciled enemies... If that is true, then how much more true is it that his life, that is his resurrected life, will save his friends? Will we be saved by his life? James Montgomery Boyce says, If God did that for us while we were enemies, he is certainly going to save us from the final outpouring of his wrath on the day of judgment, now that we are family members. If he saved us while we were enemies, he will certainly save us as friends. That's what Paul is expressing here. Looking back to the death of Christ and what God accomplished there. And saying, if this is true, if he has done this much in the death of Christ for his enemies, how much more can we know and be assured that he will save us from the wrath of God that's to come by his life. Now that we're his friends, we're no longer his enemies because he's reconciled us. And so let me talk here about the, these two aspects that we see of, of salvation that are expressed in these verses. We see justification and reconciliation. We have been justified, that is, declared righteous, and reconciled declared friends. We've been brought back to God in right relationship with God through Christ's death. Christ's death on the cross accomplished the justification and reconciliation of sinners to God through faith. To quote Boyce again, he says, reconcile means to remove the grounds of hostility and transform the relationship, changing it from one of enmity to one of friendship. So if you consider the enmity that sinners had with God, it, it's a two-way street. We had willfully rebelled against him, and God had turned his wrath toward us, which we saw back in verse 9 when Paul said that we would surely be saved 
from the wrath of God. God's wrath is against sinners because God is holy. God is just and he hates sin. And so those who rebel against him, those who violate his commands, those who dishonor him, incur the just, righteous anger of a holy God. And that is the situation that all sinful human beings, namely all human beings, are in unless God intervenes. We are under the wrath of God. You might not feel it. It might not seem like you're getting wrath from God right now. In fact, God is very kind to bless people all over the world with what we what theologians call common grace. God, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, right? God, God gives blessings and, and goodness and joy and life to the righteous and the unrighteous. That's, that's common grace. That is the grace of God that's common to all. So you might feel like things are pretty good, right? My life's okay. I don't think God's mad at me. But the wrath he's talking about is a wrath that you will face on the day of judgment. When Jesus Christ returns as judge, God's wrath will be the unrelenting and terrifying reality that every sinner must face. And when you stand in the face of that wrath on judgment day, you will either say, I am with Christ. I am resting on Jesus. So his righteousness is mine. His life is mine. Or you will say, I have nowhere to hide. And you will be undone by the wrath of God. It is a terrifying reality that is coming for all human beings. And we must reckon with it and we must prepare for it. And we prepare for it by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and recognizing that his death provided the means, made the payment for our sins so that we might be drawn back into relationship with God, reconciled to him. So there was this enmity, this two-way enmity. We had rebelled against God. God had turned his wrath against us. And in the death of Christ, we have been reconciled to one another. The wrath of God had been poured out upon Christ, and so it's removed and out of the way. And sinners, when they trust in Christ, when they believe upon his sacrifice and his, his finished work, they are granted righteousness, life, forgiveness. The great point that Paul is making here as far as it displays the depth of God's love, to go back to that, that theme of these, these first few verses that, that of God's love, is that God took the initiating step. We were at war with God, and as Paul told us, weak, unable to help ourselves. We would not, we could not do anything to help ourselves or bring ourselves closer to God or to uh, lessen the enmity between us and God in any way. And so God, in sending Christ for sinners, performed an act of initiating love, whereby our salvation would be accomplished while we were in a state not merely of helplessness, but of rebellion and animosity toward God. That is where sinners stand before God. And it is in that condition that God, 
in love, took the initiating step to send his son, Jesus Christ, to bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 2, 24. Be assured, brothers and sisters, of God's purpose to rescue you from sin, to deliver you from his wrath, and to guide you all the way home to the shores of glory. As you look at the past work of God on your behalf, the justifying, reconciling work of God through the death of Jesus Christ, let it make your heart soar with confidence at the future work that he will surely do. He will not leave you at the curbside. He will surely take you under his arm and bring you safely home. This is the reality of God's incredible love for us. And again, this is what Paul wants to drive home and what the Spirit of God wants to drive home to you. Rest assured, I will finally save all those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Verses 9 through 11 on the whole here point us toward uh, the, 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 the necessity of the resurrection of Christ for our salvation. It is good and right for us to sing and to reflect and to celebrate what Christ accomplished for us in his death. I'm not diminishing Good Friday at all. What Christ accomplished on the cross is necessary and a, 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 an incredible work of redeeming grace, of saving love. But what we see through these verses, as is expressed elsewhere in the New Testament, is that Christ's resurrection is just as necessary for our salvation. Christ's resurrected life, in some way, provides a necessary component of our redemption. Let me just read for you 9 and 10 one more time. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, that's looking back, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So, in the future, we will be saved by him. Can't be saved by a, by a Messiah who's still in the tomb. We can only be saved in the future by a Messiah who's alive. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, looking back, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We will be saved in the future. Why? Because he lives. Because he's alive. We're saved by his life. Not merely because he died, but because he died and rose. Both Good Friday and Easter are essential for our salvation. I'm going to take you to a couple of other places in the New Testament that, that might help express uh, or help us to understand what it is that Christ is doing in his life now that accomplishes our salvation. If you look just a couple of chapters later, Romans chapter 8, there is this glorious passage 
about the, the depth and the unbreakable nature of God's love. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ no matter what happens, right? If you look at verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 34, he says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ was raised. He is at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us. The resurrected life of Jesus Christ is necessary for our salvation because Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Jesus, the Son of God, stands at the right hand of God the Father in heaven and speaks for us, advocates for us, intervenes for us. The scriptures call him the mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He mediates for sinful humans and holy God. And if Jesus were not actively mediating, interceding on our behalf, we would be damned. We would have no hope. Our salvation would be utterly ruined if Christ were not living and interceding for us. Jesus stands at the right hand of God, actively making intercession on our behalf. And Paul says in chapter 5, verse 10, where we're focusing today, that we need his intercession in order to be finally saved, right? How much more will we be saved by his life? It's what's going on right now in his resurrected life that will finally save us on the day of judgment. There's another place in the New Testament I'd like to take you to. This is the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, where the, the author of Hebrews is speaking about the, the priesthood under the Old Covenant and the superior priesthood of Jesus, who is our high priest, that is the one who represents us to God. And he speaks about how the, the priests under the Old Covenant kept dying, and they had to keep being replaced by the next one in line because they were mortal, and they were humans, and they were subject to death. But he says, Jesus, look at, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 24 and 25 in Hebrews 7, Christ, as our high priest, he says, is able to save to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession. He ever lives to make intercession. Christ's never-ending resurrection life enables him to carry out his ministry of intercession for us, which is essential for our perseverance in faith and thus for our final salvation. We need Christ raised and interceding and mediating for us in order to be saved. Earlier in Romans, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul had said that Christ was delivered up for our transgressions, they're speaking of his death, and raised for our justification. So again, he very closely ties together the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ with all of what it means for us to be saved. Our salvation is not accomplished only by the death of Christ, but by his death and his resurrection. The crucifixion and the resurrection are both essential components of the atoning work of Christ. 
We need both Good Friday and Easter Sunday in order to be justified before God, to be reconciled to him, and to be finally saved from his wrath. If you reject either one, you lose the whole thing. If you say Christ died for sinners, but I don't believe that he raised, you may as well not believe in any of it. And Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 17, where he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is utterly necessary for our salvation because Christ is not done with his saving work. Christ is interceding for us. Christ is mediating for us with God. And we need his resurrected life and his intercession ministry to save us finally from the wrath of God. So this is the reality, right? The love of God displayed through his sending Christ to save weak, ungodly sinners and enemies. We see the love of God displayed in the death of Christ. We see the power of God displayed in his resurrection. And we continue to be the beneficiaries of his interceding and mediating and advocating work in his resurrected life. Where Christ now in heaven is interceding for us. And the response of justified and reconciled sinners to all this is worship. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5, back in Romans 5, 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God. How do we rejoice in God? Through Jesus Christ. He's the one who's made it possible for us to rejoice, for us to worship God. It's possible because Christ was crucified for our sins and because Christ was raised by the Father and because Christ is interceding for us now and will one day return. Through Jesus Christ, we rejoice in God. The confidence of our reconciliation with God fills us with joy. That's what, that's, that's the emotion, the affection that is expressed in verse 11 after him spelling out all of these things. You've been justified by his blood. You've been reconciled by his death. You will be saved by him from the wrath of God. You will be saved by his life. And all of these things fill us with joy. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Westminster Catechism begins with this question, what is the chief end of man? Meaning goal. What is the main purpose or goal of mankind? And the answer is simply this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I think that's a really good summary of why God made human beings. To glorify him and to enjoy him forever. We rejoice. There's joy that comes as we consider who we were and the condition we were in and what God has done in Jesus Christ to save sinners like us. 
to reconcile us to himself, make us friends. To justify us, that is to declare us righteous before him. And to preserve us until the very end when we stand before God on judgment day and we say, I'm with Jesus and what's his is mine and we are saved. The past work of God, the justifying, reconciling work of God and the future work of God, the saving from wrath are accomplished through Jesus Christ. John Piper says, if you want to know the love of God, know the work of Christ. It is what Christ did in his cross and his resurrection and in his interceding ministry for us now that we see the love of God displayed for us. And we receive it and recognize God loves me. Maybe the most profound reality, the the most profound song that you've ever sung in your life is Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. There could be no greater reality than that God loves us despite everything, despite who we are, despite our sin and rebellion against him, despite our brokenness. He loves me. He loves you. Maybe you need to hear that message today. Maybe you just need to be reminded, friend, God loves you. And God has shown you his love in Jesus Christ. God has proven his love by sending his own son into the world to bear your sin, to rise to life again, to defeat death, and to secure an eternal inheritance, an eternal joy with God for you. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you don't have that certainty, that confidence, this could be a day of new beginnings for you. If you're watching this broadcast right now, or you're watching this recorded later on, and you think, I don't know that I have that kind of confidence. I I don't know that, that God has loved me by saving me from my sin and and promising to save me from wrath to come. I, I don't have that confidence. Friend, the Spirit of God may be calling to you right now. Repent and believe. Trust in Christ. Admit your sin before God and rest completely on what Christ has done in his death and his resurrection so that you could be saved. Trust in Christ. Brothers and sisters, Easter love is the foundation of rock-solid assurance. God wants you to have this confidence, an unwavering faith in the future grace of salvation that he has promised to those who believe in him and who call upon his name. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. These verses in Romans 5 are in the Bible, I believe, so that you will have the assurance based on God's lavish love bestowed upon you in the past through Jesus Christ that he will certainly save you from the wrath to come by the resurrection life of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let this be our confidence. Let this be our hope and the ground of our joy 
before him. No matter what comes, no matter what life brings to us, no matter how we even sin and fail and continue to fall short, God's love has been poured out on you through Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. And that should assure you that he will continue the work that he began. He will finally save you from the wrath of God. The good news of Easter for us this morning is that we all may confidently say, along with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.